Almost 100 years ago, a man sitting alone in his study before the fire was dreaming ahead of Christmas soon to come. Restlessly, he rose and pulled back the window draperies to look out on a world that seemed caught up in a crystalline spell of moonlight and snow. The shimmering iridescent beauty blurred the eyes and enchanted the mind. Under its spell, a man who didn't consider himself a poet at all added new richness to the harmonies of Yuletide. But before we follow the Christmas fantasy back over a full century to the source of our carol, let's look forward a bit to this Christmas and the joy in store for it from a friend of ours. of a century ago, Edmund Sears turned his back on the warm, firelit room and looked out through the frosted window at the chill, still landscape. Christmas was coming. He should, he thought, be feeling happy and inspired, but for some reason he was restless, discontent, plagued by a feeling that in many ways he was a failure. Oh, not a failure as measured by material things. He had to find parish. He was a respected minister, and even more remarkable, he thought, I am well paid. But as the church year ended, he considered his failures with men. Between one Christmas and the next, men fell far short of the peace and goodwill promised as their heritage so long ago. He shook his head. This wouldn't do. It wouldn't do at all. Think what the world would be without that promise. What if there were no Christmas to lift men's hearts toward a star even once a year? Suddenly his depressed mood broke, and he felt filled with an unexpected exhilarating happiness. Christmas. The world might war. Nations might hate. Men might backslide. But every year came Christmas to lift them up again. Christmas, he thought, it gives us our brief season of glory every year. And perhaps in time, we will live Christmas each day of our lives. His mind seemed right with just the right words to translate the intangible sentiment he felt. And so he seized a slip of paper, and his pen flew across it as though inspired. 
When Edmund Sears read what he had written, he could hardly believe that the words had come from within himself. They rang with such splendor. He wanted to share them with someone, those inspired words. And with a humble note of explanation on how they were written, he sent them off to his good friend, Dr. Morrison. Dr. Morrison shared them, had them printed on cards in time for Christmas, and distributed them for all the people of the church to read and enjoy. By the time another Christmas was drawing near, Dr. Morrison was plaguing Edmund Sears by letter and in person. Edmund, he insisted, you must have that poem set to music so it can be sung. It cries out to be sung. Edmund Sears laughed. I'm no musician. Well, you're no poet either, Edmund, Dr. Morrison counted, but you wrote this. He tapped the printed poem challengingly on Sears' desk. But I think in words, Sears protested, not music. I can't even think music. I can't even read music. I can't even carry a tune. Nevertheless, Dr. Morrison insisted it needs music. Edmund Sears, thus spurred into action by one old friend, thought of another old friend, Richard Willis. Willis had a way of conjuring tunes out of his head. Maybe he could find a melody to fit the poem. And so off to Willis went the scrap and the paper. And back it came with a sheet of music and a note from Richard Willis. I must confess, wrote Willis, that I didn't really write this music. It wrote itself. The words sang their own melody. And I am surprised that no one else had heard it. Well, we all hear it every Yuletide now. Words written by a man who wasn't a poet. Music that the composer insisted he didn't write. So we add it now to our parade of Christmas fantasy, the song of Edmund Sears and Richard Willis. And this is that song.
the story goes from Christmas fantasy come the echoes of a spellbound Christmas night about 100 years ago. The poetry of Edmund Sears and the melody of Richard Willis to cast its enchantment over your own Christmas. In the same spirit comes this wish from a friend of ours. intervening years and foreign miles away the heart goes home if feet cannot when it is Christmas day home to a certain house if small or large where one was born to waken in childhood's own bed at sunup Christmas morn waken to a tree bedecked with cherished ornaments twinkling tapers simple gifts to tantalizing sets and to leisure now unknown for dining and for friends for savoring of happiness if feet cannot heart wins over time and distance where snow-covered gables are brushed in memory by wings hovered by a star Since we've 
journeyed back to a century ago to collect our Christmas fantasy carol, let's head for about the same time and the same place to add to our Yuletide legend and lore. For there in New York City in the mid-1800s, we might just accidentally encounter a youngster about ten years old who is already absorbed in drawing funny pictures, doubtless to the distress of his hard-working German mother and undoubtedly to the embarrassment of his teachers. For if ever a blackboard was adorned with a suitable caricature of the hickory stick wielder, Tom Nast was the boy to do it. Tom grew up to keep right on drawing funny pictures. They had a laugh in them and usually an acid bite as well. His cartoons in Harper's Weekly spurred many a lagging patriot to enlist for service in the army. His biting portrait of the notorious Boss Tweed, who headed New York's most infamous and corrupt political ring, was so unforgettable that Tweed was actually arrested after being identified by someone who had seen the cartoon. And through the years, Tom Nast created the Tammany Tiger, the Democratic Donkey, the Republican Elephant, cartoon symbols that are used even today. And in a mellower mood, he created Santa Claus. Or at least a new kind of St. Nicholas. St. Nick, as imported into New Amsterdam, was a grim, slim, black-robed priest who administered mixed blessings with switches and a pocket full of candy. But Tom Nast had little patience with this just but hardly joyful saint. And so he patterned his own St. Nick somewhat after Washington Irving's description of the merry bowling dwarfs that bewitched Rip Van Winkle. The St. Nicholas that Tom Nast sketched was a round little elf with high-top black boots, a merry smiling mouth, plump apple-red cheeks, a floating white beard, and he rode over the housetops in a reindeer-drawn sleigh. Like so many Tom Nast cartoons, he was unforgettable. And Santa Claus stays on today, through the years, to brighten every Christmas. Well, Santa Claus and the jolly version that Tom Nast preferred will be turning up again this year. And when he does, let's hope he unloads a lot of joy from his pack down your chimney. He will, if you make the most of these suggestions from a friend of ours. think of Christmas colors as green and red and perhaps white. 
But pink is the tone we'll follow now, and pink is the color of the blossoms that brought Christmas to a pagan land. According to an old Christmas fantasy legend, it's hard to say just where fantasy ends and fact begins in the story of the Glastonbury Thorn. Joseph of Arimathea brought the Glastonbury thorn with him to a pagan land known as England. There he found an audience for his story of the Christmas star. But a reluctant, almost frightened audience that feared the vengeance of the old gods and their druid priests. Joseph observed the midwinter festival of the priests and the people worshipping the live oak, harvesting the mistletoe with golden knives. And he saw, too, the stains of human blood at the base of the oak. And he resolved that somehow he would free these people from an ancient religion that ruled them through terror. He would teach them that God asks not the sacrifice of life, but freely given love. And unafraid, he stood in the presence of people and priests. He faced the Druid priest who held the power of life and death over all in the land and told them that their day was ended. To emphasize his determination, he stabbed his staff deep into the ground and cried, Here I stay. And when he strode away from the silent crowd, his staff stayed, a symbol of his resolve. The people were impressed, for who else had ever dared defy the druid priests? The priests, fearing that Joseph's courage would indeed win over the people and strip the priests themselves of all their power, met to consider ways to discredit or disgrace Joseph. Or if that failed, a means of killing him in a way that would make it seem the gods themselves were taking vengeance. But before they could act, it was too late. Miraculously, the twisted and knobby shaft that Joseph had plunged into the earth started to bud. And along what had seemed dead wood, clung clusters of white and pink blossoms blooming in midwinter snow. The people gathered from far and wide, awestruck at this defiance of nature. Joseph told them, as though the miracle were quite to be expected, my staff blossoms to honor the birth date of the child born under the star, just as the whole world blooms under his love. From this seeming sign from heaven, the people at last gathered enough courage to throw off the old pagan beliefs and old pagan druid priests, and Christmas came then to England. So at least says the legend, but the fact is the Glastonbury thorn does bloom in midwinter. It is a fact that, though uprooted by England's Puritans during Cromwell's reign, slips from the Glastonbury thorn survive and continue to bloom as they do today amid the snow in the middle of winter. Thank <laughs> you.
And again, Christmas is on its way, with its arrival heralded by ideas from his friend of ours. Letters to Santa Claus. Dear Santa, I like you just an awful lot. I hope you like me, too. When Christmas comes, I'd like some toys. Most anything will do. I've been as good as I could be. I've washed my ears and neck. I've brushed my teeth and combed my hair and haven't teased the speck. And I could use a bicycle, a nice new bat and ball, some nuts and lots of candy, and a Christmas tree. Real tall. I leave the door unfastened and a lunch upon the shelf. Some apples for your reindeer and coffee for yourself. I guess that's all, dear Santa. Unless you have an extra toy... I'll close with love and kisses from most any little boy. And as a footnote to the story of the Glastonbury Thorn, there's an interesting custom that dates back so far no one can remember just when it started. It was the custom in England when the Glastonbury Thorn bloomed to pick some of the blossoms and present them to the royal family. 
a pleasant tradition that had an interesting encore. For a slip of the famed Glastonbury thorn was sent in 1900 by church authorities at Glastonbury, England, to the United States and planted near St. Albans School in Washington, D.C. The tree thrived in its new setting and bloomed for the first time in a winter following World War I. Late that November, a distinguished visitor arrived in Washington and was presented with blooms from the new Glastonbury thorn. He was the Prince of Wales, now the Duke of Windsor. And so a tradition went full circle, with the miracle blossoms again paying tribute to British royalty. Strange, isn't it? How history repeats itself. Thank <laughs> you.